Hello, and welcome to this seventh episode of the Gut Feeling Podcast, speaking with musicians on how they found their sound. I'm your host, Gregory Adams. I'm an arts reporter in Vancouver with current bylines at Revolver, Guitar World, Northern Transmissions, and more, while Gut Feeling is my weekly newsletter where I get to talk inspiration, tone, and so much more with even more musicians. You can sign up for the free weekly email newsletter at buttondown.email slash gutfeeling, where you can likewise find the full archive of posts and podcasts. This month's podcast is a conversation with Terry Ondang, currently the studio manager at the Noise Floor on Gabriola Island, a destination studio off the west coast of Canada that has recorded a number of projects over the years, such as Pony from Mast Country Crooner Orville Peck, uh, the latest work from Wolf Parade, The Courtney's, Partner, and literally hundreds of other projects. Terry and her partner and husband Jordan Coop have run the studio since 2011, though for the first few years it was situated in Ladysmith, British Columbia. So, naturally, the talk gets into running the studio. Uh, Terry talks about the multi-beach setting of the Gulf Island that likewise makes the noise floor such an idyllic getaway. Terry also gets into her roots within the music scene, because they run deep. Uh, She talks about her time booking punk and hardcore shows at the Java Joint, a long-gone venue on the edge of Surrey, B.C., about a half hour east of Vancouver, uh, where, you know, she she put on shows for bands like DOA, SNFU, uh, DBS... A uh, number of local and, and, and touring acts around, you know, the tail end of the 90s. There's a massive Fugazi show story in here. She also touches on her time studio managing another iconic uh, recording facility, being uh, the Hive Creative Labs. And while she's been working behind the scenes for 20 years, Terry also hints that she might actually be putting some music out in the world sometime in the near future. This was a fun one to do. Uh, there's a lot of inside baseball, a lot of first names floating around as she's bringing up folks like uh, Hive Creative Labs' Colin Stewart, producer and former DBS vocalist Jesse Gander, uh, producer Stu McKillop. Uh, Stu and Jesse are currently working together at Rain City Recorders. Terry mentions Jesse working at Wreckage Recorders before he moved to the Hive and also brings up Jordan working at Fader Master. These are technically the same building, Prior to both of those, it was known as Profile Studio B. Um, yeah, there, there probably should be some cliff notes on this. We'll, we'll probably just roll with it for now. I'll keep things short and let Terry take on the, the bulk of the talk from here. Again, this is Terry Ondang from The Noise Floor, and uh, we're just starting off the conversation talking about a few necessary post-COVID upgrades that have been made to the studio. Uh, enjoy. jumping into it so the noise floor is remodeling right now uh i mean always (laughs) yeah so so what's going on what 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 are you this is more of an outdoor this is more of a an aesthetic uh remodeling at the moment you're doing like a patio yeah well you know just expanding the patio uh last year we made a really important upgrade um in that we put in a kitchen into the studio and so I finally got the bands out of my house which was so sick (laughs) and uh you know there's never time right like how can you remodel the studio when it's full of bands all the time but uh COVID was a perfect opportunity for that and uh you know we got a creative BC grant and, you know, at that point, too, is also really like if we were going to stay open, we had to have the bands out of the house. So, yeah, we did that remodel last year. And I don't know, there's, just, there's always something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was it like, I guess, during this? This is kind of a couple weeks back now. Uh, th- there was a heat wave. Uh, what, what was it like on the island? Like uh, and, and was there abandoned residents during that period? There was there was a band from Abbotsford called the Noodle Boys. Um, Great bunch of guys. Um, And yeah, thankfully it was their last two days of of recording. So like we were into mixing at that point. So Mm -hmm. there wasn't like, you know, an extra five bodies in the studio generating heat. You know, on mixing days, like I tend to, take people I take bands out 
sightseeing and that kind of thing just to get them out of Jordan's hair while mm -hmm. fixing. So the band was able to just go jump in the ocean and just, you know, not uh, be able to stay cool while Jordan died a million deaths behind the console. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess this, 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 this feels kind of like a, like a travel brochure is, is the place air conditioned? No. <laughs> However, because of the nature of, of, you know, the build, because it's so heavily, heavily insulated for, um, sound, uh, it's also insulated for heat and cold, you know, it keeps the heat out really well and it keeps the cold out really well in the winter. It just depends really what's going on inside the studio. So, you know, uh, if we were tracking the heat from all the gear, the board and the guys would have <laughs> really made it unbearable probably. Um, yeah. But thankfully we only had to contend with the heat from the gear, so. <laughs> on a spiritual level what happens when 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 the session gets cooking <laughs> it's, it's sort of like an ayahuasca trip you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so so i wanted to talk to you about a, a number of things obviously uh you and jordan have been doing uh, the noise floor for a number of years uh, out in gabriola um, 11 years this year that's that's amazing how many how many bands have you recorded like if, if you could put a rough number on it <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we do probably 20 projects a year. That yeah. about right. So, I don't know, 200. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, before before that, this is something like uh, you know, I, I I reached out to you to 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 do this conversation. I also forgot that you used to book shows. I don't know how. I did, but but that's that was kind of part of it. But maybe even before that, what is your music relationship uh, like as as a kid, like as growing up? Like, did you grow up in a musical family? Like, what yeah. what was the the entry point? Uh, Nirvana. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's kind of cliche. Like, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm a kid of the '90s, and and yeah, I mean, I I guess I was always into music in an unusual. Um, to an unusual degree, considering I didn't have any older siblings. Uh, my parents weren't, my parents weren't musical, but they were hip because they were young parents. And so, you know, I grew up, I mean, my first favorite record was by Lena Lovitch. You know, my mom was, uh, came up through new wave and sort of like, um, you know, like 70s stoner rock. And my dad, is a little bit older and he came up through like Elvis and Roy Orbison. So I was exposed to good music, but I, you know, I had a, a really uh, strong interest in like, you know, Michael Jackson and, and Madonna and pop music when I was really small. And then that, you know, Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction was a big, big influence on me. Um, but it all sort of was leading up to hearing Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time because that, it broke my brain. I, I remember a, a friend saying, you've got to tune in to LG 73 at exactly 7.30 because that's when they play the number one hit of yeah. the, you know, and I, I, I sat down on the edge of my bed and turned on my ghetto blaster and heard Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I was like, all right, well, I'm different now forever. <laughs> Uh, I started playing guitar just so I could play Nirvana songs and yeah and then just started getting into punk rock I mean everything that I guess the trajectory was everything that Kurt Cobain you know talked about to Sonic you know and one of those bands was Sonic Youth and then of course Sonic Youth opens up the door to everything right Glenn Branca and all this like no wave stuff but also uh it was through that trajectory that I found my way to like minor threat and, and punk rock yeah now what what was that first guitar like <laughs> uh it was a court uh, like strat copy court is like a Japanese knockoff you know um of a Fender strat and I bought a big ass Fender chorus amp. 
this is all I bought this all from the Long and McQuaid on uh, King George Highway in Surrey. Yeah, yeah, I know the one. <laughs> you yeah. know, by the yeah. Flamingo and across from the Java Joint, uh, funny enough. And uh, I remember it, this is always kind of stuck in my craw because when I bought the amp, I remember the dude saying to, I said, you know, is this, is this a good amp? Is this, will I need something more? And he said, look, honey, this is all the amp you're ever going to need. Shitty. Um, <laughs> I mean, it sucks, but like, yeah. just because of the way things worked out where I had a recording studio at like age 23, he was, he was right. Like I didn't ever have to buy another amp. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, fair, yeah, fair enough. The, the interesting choice to that. Yeah. <laughs> Now, um, be, being that, you know, uh, Nirvana got you into playing guitar, like, did you start with Smells Like Teen Spirit or, or did you work through some other hits first? I think Come As You Are was probably the first one. You know, the bass yeah. on Come As You Are, probably just because that was easier than, uh, yeah. than doing power chords. Yeah, I remember walking around, uh, you know, I couldn't quite make a power chord shape, it hurt my, my fingers. It's so funny to think about this now, but like I walked around holding the neck of my guitar in that shape just to like force my fingers into the right right position. <laughs> like just like just walking around the house? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come, come As You Are also has, you know, if, if it was like a Fender Chorus amp, you really got to- uh, Oh yeah, yeah. And I don't- Fool around with that. Uh, I don't know where I got the foot switch, but I had a foot switch for it so I could like, you know, I could stomp into uh, distortion and yeah, it was pretty fun actually. In general, so, so you know, you started uh, playing, playing that Fender guitar or, or the Fender knockoff, you've got the Fender amp. Yeah. What, uh, what point do you start connecting with other people like uh, to, to perhaps play music? Uh, well, I had a friend who, uh, was in a you know played music was in a band in surrey um at that time and we would jam and i would jam with people like travis pastor who you know was was from surrey as well and you know i i wasn't that interested in being in a band i mean i still play and record music but i'm not a performer you know i've always been happy kind of being like a behind the scenes kind of person I love playing music and writing music. And, you know, I mean, it is looking closer and closer. Like I, pro I probably will release something in the next year or so, but I have no interest in uh, performing. So I would jam with my friends and stuff, but around the time that I was getting involved, I guess, with like, you know, other musical kids, like I guess when I started putting on shows at the Java Joint and stuff, I just, I wanted to be the person who was, organizing everything not playing and you know i mean those early shows too i was i was coming up through hardcore there didn't really seem to be any place for uh girls you know in that in that realm i mean at the time other than zoe i didn't really know anybody who was female who was playing the kind of music that i was interested in at the time yeah if there were more people around, uh, women around, would, would that have motivated you to, to be on the performance side of thing? Or, or was that always a comfort level of, of understanding which, which part of the music uh, industry, for lack of a better word, uh, that you wanted to be involved in? I think it's sort of the type of music as well. You know, even though I was like into hardcore and punk rock, that wasn't really the kind of music I was interested in writing myself. Um, and I didn't really see any bands like that until I became involved with The Hive. Um, you know, I mean, the, the women that were playing music at the time were in sort of like either kind of Ramones-esque kind of uh, three chord punk or, I mean, I like I loved the Red Light Sting, but again, like it was a, an aggressive kind of rock band. Um, yeah, if there were, more diversity in the scene at that point in just in terms of musical style you know I don't know I mean we're so young like punk rock you know there was there was one track at that point right I don't know maybe maybe but I mean like, um, I feel comfortable now you know but like uh 
in terms of the diversity of the types of music that I'm exposed to and that kind of thing, but um, but I still don't have an interest in performing, so maybe not. But before we get into the the Java Joint in in particular, like uh, like what was what was your first entry point into like Vancouver's like DIY kind of underground, you know, punk hardcore indie scene? Like what what was the first show that you went to? I think the first show I went to was BN. Uh, no, Go yeah, I think it was Gob, and I want to say brand new unit at the New York Theater. I, be I believe it was some kind of fundraiser at the New York Theater that Gob played. And I have the ticket somewhere. I just can't remember what it was. And then I started, I was taking the SkyTrain, I think, you know, the SkyTrain was kind of new to me. And I was taking the SkyTrain from Surrey to Commercial Drive and going to venues like Lacana. And I'm pretty sure that's where I saw like Mecha Normal and Submission Hold. Yeah, you don't hear a lot of people drop Lacana, <laughs> which was, you know, a, a very sh short-lived, short well, to, to my experience, I'd only seen shows there, maybe like 98, 99 or so. It, it very well could have been running for a number of years before then. Uh, but but no one really talks about it. this. It's it, it was also cool because it was right on the drive, which I guess the New York Theater yeah. was as well, yeah. but. Uh, it's kind of a neighborhood now that that uh, at least in terms of this this kind of uh, Indian punk rock, you just don't really see that in that neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Anymore. And you know, there was that thing of like it was a little bit uh, I don't know how else to put it other than food not bombs. You know, like there, yeah, <laughs> there was definitely that commercial drive element to the punk rock in that yeah. uh, neighborhood. <laughs> I had never, I have never seen a show at the New York Theater. Oh, wow. Like what, what was, what was that like? That's, that's, that's kind of another like era specific 80s, 80s, 90s, Vancouver punk and hardcore. Uh, there, there's a lot of history there. Uh, you know, death sentence shows, yeah. DOA shows, a lot of epitaph stuff. Like uh, what, what, what do you remember about going to that first show and just like the feel of the, the building? Cause it was also, you know, a, a theater. It was like a movie theater as yeah. well. But, oh, um, I mean, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful, tiny movie theater. I'm trying to think of something that's comparable because it was smaller than, um, uh, what's that theater at the drive-in Broadway? Uh, the Rio. Uh, the Rio yeah, theater. it was smaller than the Rio. I mean, I, it kind of oh. reminds me of, um, oh God, you're going to have to help me out with a lot of these memories. Uh, there was a theater in Seattle, uh, the Vera Project. Do you remember that place? Yes. It kind of yeah, yeah. Reminded me yeah. of that. Uh, um, oh, okay. But I think it had a balcony too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it had a, a balcony. Anyway, it was a beautiful little space, and I was so stoked to see a punk rock show. Yeah, I guess that's where it started, and then and then you know, I mean, then I started going to punk rock shows, and, and eventually I I walked into the Java Joint, and. I think Jason Collins was doing hardcore shows when the Java Joint was still a 10 seat coffee shop. Like, like the, like the original one, like two doors down yeah, from where it would yeah. be. Yeah. 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 So I started going there and then I think, I think Jason was the one who, you, you know, when I met him, I realized, oh shit, there's punk rock happening in Surrey too. So did, did you like ask him about booking shows or like how, how did you get on to that point being like going from spectator to uh, showrunner? Um, well, you know, I came on sort of at the time where Murray, the owner of the Java Joint was um, thinking about taking over the army surplus store next door. And, you know, I mean, I didn't really want to do, I think maybe I did a couple shows in that 10 seat coffee shop, but I didn't really like the idea of doing shows there because it was so crammed, especially with hardcore. You can imagine like, you know, people go in for a coffee and then Jason Collins stuffs 50 kids in the front entrance, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but when Murray was talking about moving to this big space next door, I had a lot of ideas and, you know, I, I think actually I just had a memory. My entry was I went to the Java Joint to interview Murray to ask him about starting a business because at the time I was convinced that I wanted to open a record store. I okay. had been going to like tracks and, and you know, um, 
all the an AMB Sound and all those stores on Seymour. And I thought Surrey ought to have a cool record shop as well. And uh, and then I asked Murray, you know, like, how do you start a business, that kind of thing. And he was like, if you're interested in music, why don't you start hanging out here and putting out some resources for bands? You know, just things like how to join Music BC and how to get registered with SoCan and all this shit that like no punk rocker cares about at all. <laughs> yeah. um, but but that's where I started to get involved. And then because Jason and I were really tag teaming the shows in the beginning of the Java Joint. And I think it was that Murray was like, you know, I'll get Terry to do sort of the more responsible type things and I'll get Jason to bring the kids in. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you remember what the first show you booked was? No. I mean, I, it's all such a blur. I can tell you some of the ones no. that like, you know, I, I mean, I know when I started putting shows on in the, the bigger Java joint, my, all I wanted to do was a show for us nephew, you know, yeah. and, and we did so many shows. I mean, you remember, like there was at least two shows a week happening um, around that time. And like, there were a million bands coming through. And that's when like, I met all the Sealand kids. Cause I think at a certain point, and I'm not sure like how much the SkyTrain had to do with this, but I just remember at a certain point, the Sealand sort of um, South Wall scene kind of melded with the Wally Java Joint scene. And yeah, yeah. yeah, that's where I met like Andy and and Matt and Brian and and all those guys, um, Jesse, of course. Yeah, I don't know. I I remember doing um we did this like outdoor show the one and only outdoor show at the Java joint, um, Java Palooza 98 <laughs> and DBS played that show. I think that's that. I remember that being significant for me because I was a big fan of DBS. Um, did you, did you get to book? I SMU? did. I did. And, uh, was that at, at, the, yeah, at the Java at the joint? Java giant? That was, yeah, that was an incredible show. Um, I did a DOA show there that also meant a lot to do. I don't know. I mean, I also, one of the really personally important shows for me to do at the Java Joint was um, the Flex Your Head 10 year anniversary show, which I, I think Jason and I did that together. But, you know, that I think that's when I met Reserve 34, which, you know, was kind of life altering for yeah. a lot of reasons. I, 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 I feel there are a lot of people that might feel that way uh, in, in this city. Yeah, yeah, that was such a good show. Yeah. Uh, was that, there was like, a, was that a two-day thing? Like, I'm trying to remember. I'm actually, this is uh, my cross-referencing right now. I have a spreadsheet of every show I've been to. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, 10, 10 year anniversary. That would be probably like 1999 maybe 2000, uh, Java Joint. This is so boring to just listen to, but I'm just rifling through. Uh, <laughs> like, okay, f find Reserve 34, Java Joint. You know, this is, this is live spread, live spreadsheeting. We are doing it. Uh, I can't quite find it. But uh, I, I, I know I can just send it to you at some point because this is very exciting stuff for you to be receiving. Uh, concert listings <laughs> from, from 20 years ago anyways <laughs> sorry let's reroute that back to your story so so, you, so flex your head 10th anniversary mm -hmm. big, big show for you for a number of reasons um yeah keep, keep going with that if, you, if you'd like but we could also move on too that, that, that's 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 how a conversation works yeah i can't you know i mean the most significant thing to come out of that show for me personally was matt smith you know, um, mm -hmm. but that feels more like a personal conversation. <laughs> so we, we talked a lot about the Java joint, but you didn't only book at the Java joint. There was also, um, I, I, I guess, probably arguably one of the bigger ones you would have been involved in was, was connecting with Fugazi. Yeah, so to bridge the gap between 
the Jabba Joint and Fugazi, uh, <laughs> there's sort of a weird left turn in that I started working for the Blue Lizard Cocktail Cabaret, which was a swing and lounge record label. And, and they also did cocktail cabarets at the Waldorf Hotel. When I was working for Blue Lizard, everybody had like a weird, you know, like cocktail name. And I was the young kid of the of the group. And so they were like, they, they all called me Miss Terry. And then mm-hmm. I got interviewed by Nardwar, uh, you know, because I was doing shows at the Java Joint. And he was like, who's Miss Terry? Miss Terry, blah, blah, blah. And you <laughs> brought that up on CITR. And that's yeah. how that stuck. But um, because... <laughs> thank you, Nardwar. Uh, but um, because I was working for this, you know, essentially production company, um, when the swing and lounge scene started to dry up, my boss at the cocktail cabaret was like, well, you're into punk rock. You do shows like who can we book? What, what kind of shows can we do uh, to make money? And so then I started doing, I did a bunch of like Eptap bigger bands, but it was through that that I sort of like started to develop like, I guess, um, tour contacts and or like, you know, booking agent contacts and started to like get experience doing work visas and that kind of junk. And how this all relates back to Fugazi is, you know, I had that experience now under my belt. So I, I had moved into the White Belt House on Woodland and Broadway, what became the Three Inches of Blood House. And um, I was living with a bunch of people. One of those people was Eric Axon from Sightlines. Yeah. And uh, I remember Eric saying, you know, if you could do any show for any band, who would it be? And I was like, Fugazi, obviously, you know, uh, Kurt's dead. So it's going to have to be uh, my next hero, Ian. And uh, <laughs> and he said, we should do it, you know? And I'm like, how am I supposed to do a Fugazi show? And he's like, just write Ian a letter. Just write him a letter and see what happens. And I was like, yeah, this isn't going to happen. But I did it on Eric's advice and surprisingly, I mean, I wrote an email and, and uh, to my surprise, a couple of weeks later, I had an email in my inbox from Ian Mackay. And he was like, he had no reason to assume that I could pull off a show like that. You know, it was just basically like, <laughs> hi, I do shows. I love Fugazi. Can I do a show for you if you ever come to Vancouver? <laughs> and uh, yeah. Ian's just really fucking cool. Now, did they, were they, I guess maybe, maybe the next question on that is like, were they, were they on a already scheduled like tour grid to go through Vancouver or, or did this kind of stoke the flames to, to get them on tour? Well, no, it, it was actually just like really cosmic timing. Like Fugazi was already planning on touring through Vancouver and Victoria and the issue, I think why he got back to me so quickly was because he was running into trouble with other promoters. No one could make it work because Fugazi wanted to charge five bucks, you know? And I mean, they were willing to charge $8 <laughs> Canadian. Um, yeah, that's the exchange rate. That makes sense. And and yep. there wasn't an all ages venue that could hold them. Um, so everybody was struggling to make it work. So I just said, yeah, I'll, I'm going to, I'll try. I'll put my hat in the ring. I remember I drove out to Chilliwack. I I was looking all over the place for just like a big old venue that could hold that many kids all ages. The other thing that was going on was that there was a bus strike at the time. Uh, Like not just a bus strike, a (laughs) municipal strike of some sort. Like there was no garbage collection. And uh, so wherever it was going to be, it was going to be difficult since everyone would have to drive there. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't really remember how it happened. I think I just started looking through just tons of venues and I ended up at uh, in Burnaby at the, 
I can't remember what it's called. It's probably in your spreadsheet. I, it's, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at, I, I, I've, I've Googled the, the poster and it's at Bill Copeland Sports Center. There you go. I was thinking Douglas Copeland for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> that would like, have been trippier. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, what, what do you what do you remember about the show itself? Like, you know, from, from I guess perhaps from the production standpoint of it, you know, putting on this kind of larger scale show, uh, and and then just the enjoyment of uh, you know seeing, as you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, one of one of your heroes. I mean, it was so cool. It had it had its problems. Um, Zulu really helped me. Grant at, at Zulu helped me out because you know we're making. First of all, they agreed to sell tickets for us. And, you know, so this was a huge show that wasn't going through Ticketmaster. So it was a lot for them to have to deal with and Scratch, you know, Keith and Scratch and Grant and Zulu were really rad to, um, to handle that kind of volume of tickets. And then, you know, the sound guys that I hired, they had never heard of Fugazi, the guys who ran the sound, um, the sound company. They wanted to get paid in full in advance because they didn't know what the show was and they thought it was just a big waste of time basically but i didn't have that money in advance so i went to grant at zulu and i was like is there any way i could get an advance on these tickets and that is a big risky thing on his part to do because if the show didn't happen then what right so yeah, yeah. but he fronted me you know, uh, at least a couple grand uh, so I could pay these motherfuckers. And it was really satisfying when, you know, they came in, they had such attitude about it too. They came in, they set up the whole sound system. It was a big deal, you know, to be able to to provide enough sound and, and lights for that room. And they just weren't taking it seriously. And then when 2000 kids started streaming in the doors, they were like, oh shit, this is real. <laughs> <laughs> it was a wild show. I'm looking at the set list right now. This is perhaps a, a, a natural pivot to a, a, maybe maybe the next chapter in in in, in Miss Terry. Uh, but the, just I'm just looking at it's. They played like almost 40 yeah. songs. That is wild. That is a marathon. I, I it's it's available. You you can buy this as a digital album through the Discord site through Fugazi directly for five dollars. Uh, that nice nice little plug there. Uh, but at the bottom of the poster, uh, it says that the show is presented by Miss Terry and the yeah. Hive. Uh, and and obviously uh, right beside that, I'm seeing that it was recorded by Colin Stewart and the Hive Studios. So being that you were you know a, a, a eventually as a studio manager at the Hive, how did you get connected through that? You know, because that that is a pivot from from show promotion to helping run a yeah. studio. Yeah, um, I connected with those guys. Um, we all went to Trebis recording school and Colin was teaching. No, wait, this is before I went to Trebis. Colin went to Trebis and then I went to Trebis and then Colin became a, a teacher at Trebis and I became the administrator of the school. And so we were working together at the same time at this recording school that we had both attended. And a lot of people either worked or came out of that school. Um, you know, uh, Mark Lawson, who was uh, one of our roommates at the in the early days of the Hive, who went on to win a Grammy for recording um, the Arcade Fire. He was mm -hmm. one of our students and Brian Mitchell worked there and Jordan went to that school. Um, so yeah, so I met Colin and, and all those Hive guys around that time and I asked them to record the show for me and that's why I, I gave them that credit on the poster you know because um, yeah. I couldn't pay okay. them to record it <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty wild notch in the belt to to have that it, 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 and, and you know just to to rep once again the Burnaby BC concert uh, July 7th 2001 uh, Fugazi has graded the recording as excellent yeah, I mean, it's a great recording. Actually, I remember when we brought in all like the board and all the equipment, um, Guy was really nervous. Like Guy took Ian aside 
you know, to have a private chat. Cause he was like, when you asked if we, if you could record this show, we thought you were going to like show up with like, you know, a, a little like digital <laughs> handheld. When we showed up with a 24, you know, track console, I think Guy was pretty freaked out. Like, what are you going to do with this? You know, like, are you going to try and yeah. release it or something like that? Yeah, I actually remember like, you know, yeah, like Guy and Ian went backstage to have a little private convo about it. And Ian came out and walked up to Colin and said, all right, I'll let you guys record this. But if you release it, I'll kill you. Colin was like, holy shit. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's wild. That's um I'm 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 guessing that you've read like a lot about like early DC hardcore and stuff like that. Like um, so so like it, it's funny to think about Ian Mackay, who was eventually you know kind of like a pacifist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like reading those old stories about like brawls around Georgetown. But yeah, he 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 very well could still have that in him. He's just. He's a very straightforward wait, man. Waiting for the wrong person. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe the next question is so so what did you study at Trevis? <laughs> uh, music business administration, aka nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, having connected with 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 the people at the Hive, then, like, how how did you like? Was was this project the the start of that relationship? Then, like, uh, you transitioning into uh, you know fr front of house management at at the facility. Yeah. Well, when I hooked up with the Hive, uh, we we're still in what we called Hive D. It was. Uh, a house in you know near Nanaimo um and uh Nanaimo and I mean near near Renfrew you know and uh yeah I mean really I think what happened was just like they were so disorganized and I kind of had my shit together and it just sort of started like that like let's do shit together you know very casual yeah um, yeah, yeah. You know, but then Colin and I got together and, you know, just by the very nature of us, like getting married and stuff, like I started to take over more of the business and um, quite honestly, I was sick of having bands in my house, um, <laughs> ironically enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, we were recording lots of cool band, like that Hot Hot Heat record was recorded in the basement. Um destroyer this night you know uh raider berlin like there's a lot of rad stuff happening but it just for newlyweds at that age and all that it was just a lot to have to live with a bunch of people all the time so mm -hmm. i i was like i gotta find a commercial space so um I, again just like this weird cosmic timing you know because again i didn't know what the fuck i was doing i literally I, would, I wanted to say Googled, but at that time, probably like, you know, Alta Vista or something. Uh, recording studios, Vancouver. And yeah. found an empty space in Burnaby, which became... Yeah, but it's, it's the hot spot. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so we went and we looked at it. The deal with that space was um, there was a dude who was the cousin of Jimi Hendrix who uh, and he played in an earth, wind and fire cover band and on the strength of those two things, went to the bank and said, I wanted to, I want to start a recording studio. The bank gave him a shitload of money. He started like, you know, converted this warehouse in Burnaby into a recording studio and then just like, didn't have any clients and promptly went out of business. <laughs> oh, shit. Lucky for us, I mean, we stumbled into that and uh, everything was done. Like the everything was soundproofed, the expensive studio glass was in and we just got to like take over. Yeah, what um, there's obviously the, the, the high for a number of years, like being at that Burnaby location has had seen like a number of in incredible projects, both small scale and, and large scale eventually. Mm -hmm. um, what are what are some of the most memorable sessions uh, that you remember going on uh, during during those early years at, 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 in Burnaby? I, I mean, again, there's so many, but 
I, one one thing that was was interesting, and 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 these are both of my memories actually didn't take place in the actual studio, um, but I do recall like going to Seattle to meet with Pretty Girls Make Graves, and that was kind of an important relationship, and we ended up doing, and that was like our first big big record. You know, we got the check in the mail from Matador, and that seemed to be like a big. Uh, bucket list goal, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, there were, there were so many great projects. Um, one of the other, those significant ones, again, didn't actually happen at the studio. I mean, kind of did. Uh, when, when Ladyhawk were ready to make Shots, their second record, they just, they were having such a hard time. Like, you know, they came in, they'd booked all this time in the studio. And I remember it just wasn't happening for whatever reason. And that happens. It's hard. You know, like you book this time, there's a lot of pressure. We, we taped headphones to Ryan Peter's head because, you know, he swings his head so much when he plays, it was, they kept falling off his head and just Duffy couldn't play. It just wasn't happening. So they, they were like, can we do it at our jam space? We tried, we moved everything to the jam space. It wasn't happening there either. It just wasn't coming together. So they said, can we go up to Kelowna and try it? Um, there was this art, this, this old abandoned house that was being used as an art gallery, actually being run by, it was run at the time by um, Renee, who now uh, runs the Copper, oh, she doesn't actually anymore, but who ran the Copper Owl, Owl in Victoria. And we went there and we recorded shots and a little documentary was made also at the time uh called let me be fictional and that was cool that and that gave us sort of the idea of like the power of remote recording okay okay yeah. now um how 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 does this this feels like a like a large jump uh but like uh, how, how how does it go from the hive to the noise floor like i there's 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 not a perfect oh what was oh. that oh that was just a notification <laughs> Sorry about that. okay um maybe the um yeah i guess as i said you know that that's kind of a big jump here but uh working at the hive to working at the noise floor like uh those relationships obviously uh maybe that's a nice point to jump off on in a way a remote location yeah. being being that both both versions of the noise floor were are, are you know gulf island studios yeah. how did how did that begin uh i mean that had a lot to do with uh divorce <laughs> personal <laughs> issues i mean you yeah. know, Colin and I had the intention of moving to Victoria, doing exactly what what he has done, that we would move the studio at some point to Victoria. But, you know, Colin and I divorced and we were running the studio together for a couple years after that. Um, but, you know, it, it became tricky. Um, but more than that, more than just running a studio with your ex, there was the issue of the hive just started to cost so much money, you know, um, it was a commercial mm -hmm. facility in, in Burnaby and it was 3000 square feet. Jesse and Stu were paying a lot of money in rent and the studio was, was operating 24 hours a day just to keep the lights on. So it, it just got to a point for me where I thought it doesn't really make sense to keep doing this anymore. Then how, how how do you get connected with with Jordan? You know, uh, had Jordan been recording at the Hive yeah. as well? Through it's through any other yeah, thing? actually, Jordan was uh, an intern at the Hive at at Hive D at the Hive House, and uh, like he assisted Colin with, you know, uh, like Radio Berlin records and and that sort of thing, and and he had his own clients. He was recording Mecha Normal at the time. But, you know, Jordan and I were just best friends uh, through all this. And Jordan's actually the one who lent us the money, the security deposit for the, the commercial facility in Burnaby. But he got squeezed out a little bit um, because in order for Colin and I to afford the hive in Burnaby, we needed, we knew we needed another full-time engineer with a, a decent clientele. 
And so I had approached Jesse because, you know, Jesse and I knew each other from punk rock. And I approached Jesse and said, hey, maybe you want to like team up with us in this new building. And Jesse was like, absolutely not. I'm perfectly happy here at Profile. You know, I got my own thing. He had, uh, that's when he was doing wreckage. And I said, just come down to Burnaby, check out this location. Just take a look at least. And then he came and he took a look and he was like, yeah, all right, I think I could do this. And I'm going to bring my friend Stu. Um, so, you know, when Jesse and Stu got involved, there wasn't really that much room for Jordan. And Jordan started um, doing the emergency room. You remember that space? Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so Jordan kind of dropped out of everything, but we're still friends. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it gets into some personal territory, but really the long story short is after a while, I mean, Jordan and I had been best friends for so long. And then, you know, he came and, and lived with me after Colin and I divorced and then professed his love for me before going on a six week Twin Crystals tour. And, uh, mm. <laughs> you know, that's how we that's how we got together. Yeah. OK. Um, how, what, where, how, how do you both conceive of the, the idea to, to start the, the first version of the noise floor, which was in, in, in Ladysmith? Well, really, we had no intention of doing it at all. Uh, we were both ready to leave Vancouver. Like I said, I was kind of done with the rent at the Hive. It was just too much. Jordan was uh, working for Fader Master at the time. And so he had really high rent. Um, and then we we're, you know, just like the rents all around our house rent, everything was just like so crazy that we were like, why don't we just like pack this all in? Fuck Vancouver. We're going to move to the island and just be normal people, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And then on the, so we, we went to the island just to check things out. And on the way back to the ferry, I said, hey, I want to poke into Ladysmith because there's a really good thrift store there. And as we pulled in, there was a heritage building that said music hall across the front and had a for lease sign in the window. And we poked our heads in and took a look. And it was just like, it looked like an amazing space to make a record. So we called the guy and, and, you know, we took a little tour and, (laughs) you know, we weren't we weren't expecting it, but we were like, fuck, well, now we kind of have to start a recording studio because this building is perfect for it. Which, As, as you're running both of these, this is kind of a time jump uh, and kind of compressing the two. So it is, you know, uh, it's, it's a destination kind of studio, you know, part of the appeal is that it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's un- unless you're from Lady Smith or Gabriella proper, like it's, it's a getaway, you know, like uh, what, what is the importance, uh, perhaps, of of maintaining that balance of work and vacation? And 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 is, does does every project feel a little different? Like in that sense, like um... yeah, I, I mean, you know, what I find, and and this was the lesson we learned from Lady Lady Hawk, is you know, removing the pressure, the day to day pressures, uh, really helps. It's hard if you think about it to be like, all right. Now we got to be creative between the hours of, you know, 9 a.m. and and 9 p.m. and uh, make the most of all of that time because you're paying for it, right? So, and it sucks. Mm -hmm. You're like, I got to, you know, I got to buy groceries or I got to like, you know, drive my girlfriend or boyfriend to work or whatever, like, and then flip into now be creative. Um, So, you know, the whole model of like, just going away, being away from your regular life, and immersing yourself in a much more casual way. Um, it just really helps, you know, same, same thing as, as looking over like the hives discography, you know, there's, there's, there's a number of Im- impressive albums that have been tracked at the noise floor over the years, you know, uh, Wolf Parade, the Courtney's, uh, 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 Orville Peck, you know, um, what I guess there's some of those have natural connections just over the years, you know, like being musicians in the same general scene. But um, 
do you do you reach out to bands at, at, at any time like to let them know about the studio or or does just kind of word of mouth bring them to you i mean for the last few years uh yeah we don't reach out to bands anymore we're we're booked all the time and it's all word of mouth so it's been probably about five years since we've had to hustle for a band which is a really nice feeling Looping back to to like one of the one of the first moments of this conversation is that that your Discogs page um, has one credit to it, and that is uh, backup vocals on the Orville Peck record, uh, Pony. Now, I'm, I'm wondering just uh, the, the first question on this is just like, what do you remember about that session in particular and then being involved, you know, as as a performer, you know, as, as you mentioned much earlier in the conversation again, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily your intent to be a performer, yet you are performing on this particular record. Yeah, I mean, I've I've sang on quite a few records. Um, often it's just, uh, you know, a matter of convenience because I'm around. <laughs> Uh, yeah. with that, that Orville Peck album, yeah, it was the same thing. I mean, Jordan wrote and, and played uh, guitar on that album and I was there to, to sing. It didn't, you know, it wasn't really a big deal. I've sang on a Wolf Parade record and, you know, I've done lots of, um, singing with, you know, my friend Nicholas Kurgovich, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, it wasn't, um, intentional. I was just in the room. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, we, we, we need to update Discogs. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're on these records. You hinted at you have a record in the works. Like, what can you say about being ready to share some of your own music? Uh, it's been a journey. Um, you know, I, I guess I just didn't really have time for it, to be honest, uh, until now. You know, I've been, I feel like I've been busy my whole life and now I'm kind of prioritizing, you know, I mean, the, I guess the other thing we didn't really touch on was like, I managed bands too. Um, and now I'm not managing anyone. Uh, I just want to knock on wood about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not having to hustle with the studio I'm not managing anyone at the t at the moment, and um, so I'm able to focus for the first time on my own creativity. So what does that what does that bring you to then? You know, like early early early, early days. You know, you're playing that court <laughs> guitar, uh, learning 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 some Kurt songs. Uh, you're on some some very diverse uh, records from from Orville Peck, from Wolf Parade. Uh, the yeah. stuff with Nick. So in, in the between, you know, there's also like literally like hundreds, if not thousands of bands that you've been put in touch with, whether that's bands passing through the Hive Studios and the Noise Floor Studios, mm -hmm. uh, bands that you've come in contact with, you know, putting on shows and also managing bands. Yeah. As you're getting ready to um, possibly put out your own music, like what, 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 what is your own style of, of, of what, what is your own voice saying? Well, I mean, you know, I've, Guitar is my medium, uh, so uh, I don't know. I mean, oh God, this is such a weird question, right? For anybody who plays music. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I guess it's in the realm of all my kind of influences. Like it can be kind of uh, a bit shoegazy, a bit, you know, early Liz Fair kind of uh, lo-fi guitar. Um, yeah, it's still, it's also still developing too, you know, mm. um, I shared a song, <laughs> I mean, this is a very harsh critic, uh, but, um, I recently shared one of my songs with, uh, Nick, who's one of my best friends. And <laughs> he said, he said, I'm so interested in hearing what this record is going to end up being because right now it sounds like something I would have listened to on headphones while walking through my high school, the halls of my high school. Um, so I yeah. don't know what that means exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not necessarily a harsh criticism. There's, there's something nostalgic and yearning about that kind of, I guess it depends. I, I, I don't know Nick, so I, I, I can't really work on the inner workings of his psyche and, and, and how he feels about his high school yeah. experience. But uh, I, I think I'm a glass half 
full person. I hope I am. Uh, so that's how I'll take that. Right. I think nostalgic's probably a, a decent uh, description. If I could grab one out of out of the air, you know, yeah. that would be it, I guess. Yeah. So uh, are are you recording these like just kind of like in between sessions? Like, are you doing like the red eye sessions? <laughs> Like as you're recording these. <laughs> no, and in, in fact, I'm recording most of it myself um, in my the studio B, which is my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I had uh, Jordan play drums for me on a couple songs, and and I like to do uh, vocals in the studio just because it's nice to sing in a nice big resonant room, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. But for the most part, I've been recording um, guitar, MIDI, that kind of stuff, you know, myself. I, I hope I, I hope I can hear those eventually. That, that's that's. <laughs> do, you, do you have a name for it, or you or you or you? Are no, you I, I don't have a name, and I. It's funny, like you know, I get a lot of uh, like every single person in my life essentially is a musician with an album, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, all of my best friends, uh, Nicholas Kurgovich, you know, uh, uh, Crystal Dorvel, White Poppy, you know, Jordan Coop, right? Like they're all musicians with albums. Um, and so there's a lot of interest, you know, from friends that feels a little, it feels like a little bit of pressure, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't have any intention really of like making any kind of big deal about it. Like, I think I'll just put it online. I'll just put it on Bandcamp and be like, here's a thing. Yeah. It exists now. That's, that's, that's probably, you know, one of the better ways to go, you know, it's kind of freeing to just put something out in the world and just see, see where it goes from there. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I'm not going to be pursuing any labels or, you know, shows or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can't wait to hear that. I, I would love to hear that. Uh, maybe looping back just to um, life, life on Gabriola in general. You, you mentioned uh, how you know you 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 take people sightseeing. Like, like this is this is getting back to this travel brochure here. <laughs> now, like, what what are, what are the spots? Like, what what are the kind of places that you're that you're showing around? Like, as you're taking them around the island. I mean, just different types of beaches and oceans, really. I, I mean, or I guess it's not different oceans. It's the same ocean. <laughs> 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 um, different kinds of beaches, you know. I mean, Gabriel has a rocky beach, a sandy beach, a you know a beach that looks like Hawaii and a beach that's full of bricks. And so, you know, I just take them around wherever they want to go swimming, basically. Uh, eventually they'll have a large patio to, to, to relax yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, and, and there's a big, it's easy to get mushrooms here, as you can imagine. Uh, so a lot of people are interested in that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, how, how far booked in advance is, is the noise floor at the moment? Uh, we're booking, uh, December right now, um, okay. which, yeah, I mean, it's a little, a little bit unusual. Usually the year would be booked in full, uh, by this point, but I, I have noticed some, what I think is uh, winter hesitancy, you know, I think okay. kind of like what's COVID going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that makes sense. Yeah. That's, that's, that's where the, the turn was last year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we just reopened really in May again. Yeah. So there was kind of a backlog, but we were able to do some, some uh, quarantine sessions with some bigger bands. We did uh, a partner record in October of last year. Uh, mm. And uh, Orville Peck came back uh in november and so we didn't have to like completely shut down because these are bands that had the resources to book enough time where they could quarantine no that makes sense yeah. uh is is there anything coming up that 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 you, that you could be at liberty to to drop or like who's who's recording in the next few months oh um i mean there's not any like big projects that i think you would necessarily know um, we just did a uh, an Apollo Ghost record um, like last weekend. There's a band called the Sylvia Platters, which is Stephen O'Shea from You Say Party's new band. So that's coming up. And, um, you know, uh, our friend John from War Baby is going to do a solo record, that kind of thing. Is there, uh, no, I think I just asked that. Is there anything coming up? 
I, I think in general, those are, those are, those are my questions. We've gone through a lot. I'm, I'm really happy that we had this conversation. This is the, the I think this is the longest concentrated conversation yeah. we've ever had. <laughs> I know, that's in, so weird. <laughs> 20 plus 20 years. Uh, this was fascinating. Uh, 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 th thank you so much for, for getting into, you know, your, your, your personal music history, getting through the, you know, a uh, very diverse career, like in, in the music industry in, in British Columbia. Um, thank you so much for, for going over all of this today. I, I, I really appreciate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That was, this. it was really fun. Thanks for um, taking me down memory lane. <laughs> Well, thank you to Terry for that talk. Uh, there was a lot to chew on in there. I, I love that Fugazi story in particular. Very glad the band didn't end up killing Colin after all. Uh, you know, I went to a ton of shows that, that Terry had booked at the Java Joint, which, which was a great spot. I grew up in Surrey, not too far off from where the venue was, like a 10 minute drive or so. I'd spent much of my teen years hopping on buses and skytrains getting into Vancouver and North Vancouver for the bigger punk shows, so the arrival of the Java Joint, you know, near the end of the 90s was a revelation and, and a relief. Uh, I, I had played there with pretty much all of my bands, uh, in all versions of it, from that first 10-seater coffee shop. Um, there was briefly a second version of the Java Joint that was basically the unfinished uh, building, you know, it was like an industrial bunker. Just a total dirt floor, uh, unkempt warehouse style. Uh, a handful of ha hardcore bands played uh, one time. About a year later, it crystallized into its final form, uh, you know, with the uh, coffee shop in the front of the building and a concert setting uh, in, in the back room. It was, it was great. You know, I, I saw a ton of shows there. Um, a quick note on Mark Lawson, mentioned uh, by Terry in the interview as a future Arcade Fire producer. Uh, old heads will know that, more importantly, he was behind the boards for Reserve 34's 2002 Swan Song 7-inch Game Over, as well as the original Go It Alone demo cassette. So, uh, yeah, he, he sure, he re recorded the Arcade Fire, but, but he also has like a deep uh, Vancouver hardcore history. Again, Terry has been in touch with thousands of bands over the years through show promoting, management, studio managing, both the Hive and the Noise Floor. Uh, too many to name, really. I will say that our, our conversation had a few technical difficulties, so this is just one quick addendum from Terry on the importance of the band Dead Soft to the noise floor, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let her take it from here. The only, the only thing that got cut off that I just want to um, circle back to real briefly, because it's just one important uh, thing that I wanted to mention, um, uh, you had asked about important records um, during the time of the noise floor, and um, and I I had started to bring up Dead Soft, oh, okay. um, and you know I mean this is just for what it's worth if you know that those records that band became very you know we're really close with that band. I mean really no, I just wanted to make sure that like you know Dead Soft was was uh, mentioned because it feels important yeah. in the uh, in the grand scheme of bands that that meant a lot that mean a lot yeah and and like dig, digging into that a little bit like 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 a personal connection like music itself or or or, or both, both, facets uh, both of that. I mean they're good friends but I also um you know you had asked if, like if I have to hustle for bands or reach out to anybody and that was one band that I did reach out to early on in their career and said like you <laughs> have to work with us like we're in love with you you have yeah. to work with us and thankfully they did and we've made all of their records and uh, I just think they're one of the best bands in BC I mean in yeah Canada, really. um what, what what was the last record that you did with them uh it's called Big Blue and uh so good Once again, that was Terry from The Noise Floor. A big thank you to her for getting into some deep BC lore here, from those early days, you know, playing that Strat copy at home, to booking those Java Joint shows. Uh, Terry mentioned in a private message uh, after the conversation that she had also worked with Sealed with the Kiss, which was a longtime show promotion company in town. 
Um, of course, she is, you know, studio managed the hive and the noise floor. If you book some time at the noise floor, you know, she may be able to take you to those beaches. Uh, she's also available, you know, if you need some backup vocals. I'm actually really excited to hear what uh, her, her music's going to be like. Uh, you know, maybe that'll pop up on Bandcamp sometime soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider uh, telling your friends or giving it a like or rating over on Apple or Spotify. The weekly newsletter is free to subscribe to over at buttondown.email slash gutfeeling, which is where you can also peep the archive. There's a recent deep dive with dumb guitarist Nick Short on the wild whammy bar style he brings to the band's new Pizza Slice single on Mint Records. I spoke with Vancouver rapper Missy D on taking her mic skills in a new direction through her Instagram interview series. There is a synth-specific gear talk with Dark Wave maker Soft Riot. There's some rewind pieces in there. I've got some mini label guides. Uh, there's even more stuff coming up. Uh, if you want to check it out, that is at, once again, buttondown.email slash gutfeeling. If you want to check out some of my other writing, I've had recent profiles on Vancouver's Ludic, uh, Belgium's Almanra, and uh, punk veterans AFI, uh, and more over at Guitar World. The latest issue of Revolver features my interviews with Backwash and King Woman's Chris Esfandiari. I spoke with NASA Mars rover driver and musician Brendan Chamberlain about the latest album he's done as Proudfather that was uh, for Northern Transmissions. There's, there's a bunch more that I'm excited to share sometime soon. Yeah, I think, I think that's about it. Thank you again for giving this a listen. I hope you're well. I hope you're vaccinated. Let's keep plugging along, and yeah, I'll, I'll catch you the next time. <laughs>